If you have your Bible, we're turning this morning to Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to read from verse 33. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. The, the setting for this statement is the Sermon on the Mount. And within this sermon, Jesus delivers what we would all agree is some really insightful teaching. He preaches the Beatitudes. He talks about being salt and light. He gives instructions and some unusual insight into anger being linked to murder and lustful thinking being related to adultery. He teaches then briefly for a moment on adultery before then doubling down on a slightly unusual topic that is contained within these verses. He speaks about oaths, or as we would know them better, vows. And arriving at this passage and reading it through, there is some kind of strange language there. Jesus says, all you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Those of us that grew up with the 1984 translation of the NIV recognize that statement better as, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And it seems a really odd request if Jesus doesn't it. When you want to say yes, just say yes. If you want to say no, just say no. Keep your yes to yes and your no to no. It seems a bit of an odd one. But when we put it within the wider context of the other verses, we can see that wisdom is spoken by Jesus here. Wisdom always is, because it's Jesus. But there is counsel and instruction that we have to listen to and take on board. And as Jesus speaks about us from a cursory glance, he causes us to understand four quite important things. He causes us to understand, first of all, that people in Israel's past made vows, because he speaks about what people swore by. We understand in reading it then that people today, in our culture and context, make vows. There is a Christian response to vows. He says, this is what you should do. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And there are spiritual consequences to vows. Anything beyond that comes from a place that we don't want to talk about. <laughs> So, we unpack some of those thoughts together. And there are two scriptures that serve as a very real basis from the book of Deuteronomy for our understanding on vows. Deuteronomy 6, 13 says, Fear the Lord your God, serve Him only, and take your oaths in His name. Deuteronomy 10 and verse 20, which is a real anchor verse for us this morning, says, Fear the Lord your God and serve Him. Hold fast to Him and take your oaths in His name. These verses are calls, they call us to action. And the call is quite simple and straightforward. We have to fear God, we have to serve Him, we have to hold fast to Him, that is bind our hearts and souls to Him, and we have to take our oaths in His name. 
And from reading these verses, what we would see within them is that which we would identify as the very basis of spirituality, the basics, if you like. There are within these verses, within Deuteronomy 10, verse 20 in particular, four calls, as it were, that really are one call because they're all interlinked. To fear God is to serve Him. To fear and serve Him in our lives is to hold fast to Him. To trust and bind our whole lives to Him. To, to live in such a way that we live in the awe and the wonder of Him and we serve Him and glorify Him with all that we've got. However, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, as well as what we would class as basic spirituality and faith in God, there is an unusual statement tacked on to the end about oaths. We get the fear in God but Serving Him, we understand. Holding fast to Him, well, that's foundational to faith. But it seems a bit odd to see this statement about oaths bolted on to the end of what we would describe as the rudimentary elements of Christianity and faith. But actually, the mention of oaths within this statement helps us to understand the significance of them because everything else that is listed in this verse is what we would describe as significant. Fearing Him, serving Him, holding fast to Him. These are significant calls. Making oaths in His name, then it calls out that this is something significant. Within a scripture that calls us to live in devotion and service and verses that call out fearing God, that is living in reverence of him, recognizing his greatness as we're called to serve him with who we are and to hold on to him, bind to him, cling to him, we're also called to take oaths in his name. And that would suggest then that the oaths taken in his name are an outworking of everything else that is mentioned in this passage. They're an outworking of fearing him and serving him and holding fast to him. Now, by definition, a vow or oath is a solemn promise, a declaration, a dedication that binds an individual to something or someone. In fact, the dictionary describes an oath this way. It is a solemn promise, often invoking a divine witness regarding one's future or behavior. Now, when we take that dictionary definition, we put it into Deuteronomy 10 and use it as a lens to build an understanding we begin to learn that to make a vow or oath to something is to recognize the significance and greatness and value of that which you've sworn an oath to. It is to serve that which you've sworn an oath to. And it is to bind, that is to fasten and attach yourself to that which you've sworn an oath to. Let me give you some examples. A vow of silence, for example, is a promise to remain silent. It is to call out a belief that being silent is something of value and significance because if you didn't believe that, you wouldn't commit by an oath to do it for the remainder of your days. To take a vow of silence is to function, that is to outwork your life in service of silence. Silence is what you serve, it rules you because it determines your behavior and your function. It is to attach your whole being to silence, to live out the rest of your days fastened onto and attached to silence. A vow of silence bind, binds the individual to silence. 
A vow of service within the military or the Hippocratic Oath in medical terms is one that is taken very seriously by those who make such oaths. And these vows are taken seriously because the individual or individuals recognize that what they've sworn to is that which is significant, that is valuable, it is a greater cause. It's an oath or vow that then begins to direct their service and their function. It shapes what they do and the way that they behave within certain situations. It is one that individuals bind themselves to and fasten themselves onto because vows and oaths are very serious things. And of course, we can't talk about vows and oaths without talking about marriage because it's the most common vow that we make. Vows are the basis of marriage. And in making these vows, a couple recognize that what they're entering into is something significant, something great, and something of incredible value. And I can say 18 years down the line, I am so blessed that I got to make a vow to the most amazing woman on the face of the earth because her marriage is something of incredible value to me. When we make that vow, we enter into a wonderful and valuable covenant with the one that we love. And it's a covenant and it's a state of union that we serve. Because those that enter into marriage make a commitment that all of our life will be outworked through that vow and covenant. Our working life, our family life, our parenting life, our social life, our retirement life, all aspects of life are worked out through the vow that has been made. It's the basis for life and something that we serve with every aspect of who we are. And importantly, it is a vow that when we make it, we're bound to and attached to for the rest of our days till death has do part. Vows are very serious. Oaths, when made, are incredibly significant, and it's important that we recognize the significance and power of vows and oaths. So let's throw some scripture at this. Deuteronomy 23 says this, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it. For the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you and you'll be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from making a vow, you will not be guilty. Whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do because you made your vow freely to the Lord your God with your own mouth. Now the take home from this passage is that God does take vows and oaths seriously. When vows are made in his name and in his presence, he binds us to that promise and he looks for us to fulfill it. When we make a vow to God, in essence, we enter into a contract that if we fail to deliver what we promised, we encounter a penalty. We end up in debt to God. And that sounds like pretty serious and heavy language, but actually Deuteronomy phrases it much harsher than I just did. It says that if we fail to fulfill the vow, we're guilty. Guilty of sin. That's heavy, heavy stuff. Now, I know what you're thinking. Right, okay, Pastor Ronald. I say Pastor Ronald because the other week I get a letter addressed to Pastor Ronald Fraserson of Glasgow Elam. That is now my alter ego. If you've got complaints, see Pastor Ronald. I know what you're thinking. Right, okay, Fraser, I hear you, but surely that was more the case in biblical times when people actually swore oaths and made vows and spoke in yon verily, verily type language. But as we don't tend to speak that way, we don't tend to hear phrases like, I swear an oath to the Lord as part of our everyday language. Does this teaching still apply to us? Well, Jesus would suggest, yes, it does. Luke, in the Sermon on his Mount, 
on the mount where he tells us the things that people swear by, four things. I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven for it's God's throne, or by earth for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. According to Jesus, there are four things that people swore by. People swore by heaven as the most supreme reality. People swore by earth as that which was sure and certain. People swore by Jerusalem as that which was viewed as sacred and that which was revered. People swore by their head to represent their life. And when we call that out and we call out what they represent, we begin to realize that, yes, in actual fact, we do still make covenants and oaths and vows as part of our everyday language. How often have we heard the phrase, oh, for heaven's sake, or I swear to God, or I swear to the good Lord, Or when people say, I swear on earth, or I swear on my mother's grave, or I swear on my life, or hand on heart. In our culture, in the dialogue, in the rhetoric of our culture, there are times when knowingly and unknowingly, intentionally and flippantly, we make vows and oaths as part of our everyday conversation. Now, the truth of the matter is, God looks at the heart and examines the mind to reward a person according to their conduct. God looks at the heart. And while these may be just figures of speech that can be said without the heart properly engaging in their meaning, Jesus did warn us that the best thing to do is just let your yes be yes and your no be no. He warned us against such comments and rhetoric. Look at his teaching. He says, don't swear by heaven. Why are we not to swear by heaven? Because he tells us that's where God lives. It's his dimension, it's his abode, it's his dwelling place. Heaven revolves around him. Heaven has its existence because of him. Heaven is him. So to swear by heaven is to swear by God. Don't swear by earth because it's his footstool. It's under his feet. It belongs to him. He made it. Its existence and function, its order and its structure is down to him. He holds it all together. Everything flows out of his infinite power. So to swear by earth is to swear by him. Don't swear by what is sacred. Because what is sacred outside of him? He is the epitome of holiness. He makes things holy. He defines what is holy. His presence and purpose is what decrees and calls something holy or sacred or otherwise nothing is sacred outside of him. So to swear by what is sacred is to swear by him. Don't swear in your life because you can't control and make your hairs turn black or white. That'd be handy. You can't control life. You can't control the affairs of life because there's one who does. And he sets out the pathway and he's written the plan and he ordains the steps and he shapes our world to swear by life is to swear by the author, creator and sustainer of it. To swear by these things is to swear by him. So we've got to be careful with our speech. We've got to let our yes be yes and our no be no and be careful not to enter our souls into binding contracts and oaths. Surely though, we would ask, if we don't realize that we're making a vow, is it still applicable? I'm sure God, who is a good and gracious God, does apply grace within such moments towards us. But we do have to recognize that the Scripture calls us to something that's pretty significant. According to Deuteronomy, what makes a vow binding and enforceable is when it's spoken. Deuteronomy 23, whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do because you made your vow freely to the Lord your God with your own mouth. Proverbs 20, it is a trap to dedicate something rashly and only later to consider one's vows. These scriptures would suggest to us that what makes a vow live is when it's spoken. The wisdom of Proverbs 
also seeks to show us that we can rashly utter vows and declare oaths without realizing what we've done, but still be held accountable for it. And it is important for us that Proverbs 20 also describes flippant vows and oaths as a trap. And that reflects the definition that we've already called out and we've already defined with regards to oaths because a, a trap is something that holds you bound. It's something that holds you fast. A vow or an oath is that which we're bound to until it's fulfillment. So vows spoken correctly can bind us to God and His purpose for our lives. But spoken incorrectly, they can entrap us and ensnare us. We have to be careful in making rash vows with our speech and our dialogue because they can actually entrap us, that is, limit us, control our behavior, and impact our forward journey. Now, we've said often we never build a theology based on one scripture, but where scripture echoes the same things and where multiple scriptures repeat the same things, that's, that's a doctrine that you can hang your hat on. And the scripture does give us warning after warning. Ecclesiastes 5 says this. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fill it. Fulfill it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It's better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin and do not protest to the temple messenger, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the works of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. You'll notice, even in the passages that we've called out already, that there seems to be this trend of really strong language in relation to vows within the Scripture. And I think that's because God takes vows very, very seriously. In Ecclesiastes, in particular, it's revealed that delaying to fulfill a vow is to be regarded as a fool by God. In fact, it causes him displeasure. Unfulfilled vows then disrupt the pleasure of God. Our call in Scripture is to find out what pleases Him and to pursue it, but we then also have to understand the flip side of that call, which is equally important, is we need to recognize what causes Him displeasure and avoid it, and unfulfilled vows and oaths spoken in haste, they fall into the latter category. The language in Ecclesiastes seems to suggest to us that vows and oaths unfulfilled disrupt the favor of God in our lives. They bring Him displeasure, they invoke anger, and they are viewed as foolishness. Heavy language. But the interesting part in these verses is where it says, do not protest to the messenger. What does that mean? Who is the messenger? Well, we're not entirely sure, which is always helpful. But given the fact that the Bible refers to angels as God's messengers, could it be that when we make vows and oaths that God assigns his angelic beings, those that minister his justice and administer his work and affairs, could it be that God assigns his angels to watch over the vow and to ensure that that which is promised is fulfilled? And if that is the case, then there is a spiritual dynamic and spiritual element to the vows that we make. They, much like offenses, have the ability to alter the culture of our souls because when they're spoken rashly or otherwise, our souls are bound to their promise and clearly invoke consequence. Remember the dictionary definition. A solemn promise often invoking a divine witness regarding one's future action or behavior. Even the dictionary recognizes that when we make vows, we invoke something spiritual 
in that moment, but it actually calls out the oath's impact, future action, and behavior. Ecclesiastes hits the square between the eyes. An unfulfilled vow makes God angry, and he destroys the work of your hands. This is not the kind of preaching that you you will hear often from this pulpit, but the text really calls it out and spells it out to us with no uncertain terms. Unfulfilled vows are a barrier to the blessing of God. You can't avoid it. It's like there in black and white. There is no avoiding the fact that God takes our vows very seriously. They carry spiritual power. They alter the culture of the soul. For when spoken, our souls and our lives are bound to them. And when unfulfilled, they invoke consequence in our lives. We have to recognize as his people that God holds us accountable for the vows that we make. And let's look at some biblical example of vows as we shift the message a little bit. One of the earliest examples that I could find was in Genesis chapter 28. We can put it on to the next slide. Genesis 28, where it says, Then God made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I'm taking, and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God, and the stone that I set up as a pillar will be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. This is this moment where Jacob has his dream at Bethel and he sees the stairway to heaven with God standing at the top and angels ascending and descending on it. And as he awakes, he makes a vow to God. If God watches over and protects me, if he provides, blesses and prospers me, then I'll take him as my God and I'll honor him with all that I have. The story goes that he then leaves that place and he travels to Padam Aram where he moves in with his uncle Laban and marries his cousins. That's a bit weird, Rachel and Leah. And as the story of Jacob unfolds, we're told that he has many sons, his flocks begin to increase and he does indeed prosper. But while that sounds great, all is not rosy in Jacob's garden because His uncle Laban treats him quite harshly. And because of his uncle Laban's treatment, he's forced to flee from him and leave the house. And as he's explaining this to his wives, he shares with them a dream. It says in Genesis 31, In breeding season, I once had a dream in which I looked up and saw that the male goats mating with the flock were streaked, speckled, and spotted. The angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, I answered, here I am. And he said, look up and see that all the male goats mating with the flock are streaked, speckled or spotted for I've seen all that Laban has been doing to you I'm the God of Bethel where you anointed a pillar and where you made a vow to me now leave this land at once and go back to your native land Jacob had vowed at Bethel that if God would give him blessing security and prosperity then he'd worship the Lord and the Lord would be his God and the inference kind of here is that he'd return to that place to do so We now find him, two wives and many children later, alongside a flourishing livestock business. And God sends to him an angel to remind him of his vow. This is where we tend to then lead in to the concept of the messenger in Ecclesiastes being an angel watching over the vow, ensuring its fulfillment, because here is an angel reminding him of his vow. Anyway, the story continues. It says, after Jacob returned from Padam Aram, God appeared to him again and blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob, but you'll no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. 
And God said to him, I'm the God Almighty, be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you and kings will be among your descendants. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I also give to you and I'll give this land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him at the place where he had talked with him. Jacob set up a stone pillar at the place where God had talked with him and he poured out a drink offering on it and also poured oil on it. Jacob made a vow He swore an oath of his own accord. He made a promise to God. God held him accountable to his vow, even reminded him of his vow. And as he returns and fulfills his vow, as he fulfilled that which he promised to God, in these verses what we read is God blessing him beyond his wildest imagination and releasing him into his full godly potential. Vows fulfilled invoke the pleasure the favor and the blessing of God. And while up until now we've been highlighting and calling out that flippant and irrational vows bring us into a binding contract that have consequences when they're not fulfilled, we also have to call out that to knowingly and truthfully make a godly vow and follow that vow through to fulfillment is to see blessings unlocked from heaven and the favor of God visiting our lives. A further example of this is with Hannah and for Samuel. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you'll only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant but give her a son, then I'll give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will be used on his head. Here Hannah makes a vow to the Lord. She intercedes for her barrenness to be turned to fruitfulness. And she prays not just for a child, but specifically for a son. And as she does, the scripture calls it out, she made a vow. She vows that if God granted her a son, then he would be devoted to God all the days of his life. And of course, we all know Hannah does become pregnant and Hannah does bear a son and she does make good her vow. That which she'd prayed for, that which she'd longed for, that which she'd fought through pain and bitterness for and interceded into reality, she comes and she gives it back to God. She dedicates her son to God. And she leaves him in the house of the Lord to serve for the rest of of his days. And when we turn into the next chapter, 1 Samuel 2 records Hannah saying something very important. She says, she who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. It strikes me that Hannah could have held on to the son that she prayed for with much bitterness and anguish of soul. She could have taken the blessing that God had given her, the blessing for which she wrestled with God to receive. And having received that, she could have made the decision, I'm going to hold on to this blessing. But instead, she chose to recognize the significance of the vow that she'd made. And she made good her vow. And look at the result. God honors her and releases bountiful blessing over her life. She who was barren had seven kids. When she honored her vow, it unlocked favor and blessing over her life. Look at Jonah. While my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, O Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. We know the story of Jonah. Jonah has had a rough ride. 
He's been on the run from God. He's steered into trial and tribulation as a result. He gets onto a boat. The boat steers into the mother of a storm and it threatens to drown them and destroy them completely. Jonah comes to that place where he realizes that he's poked the wrath of God and he hits a bit of a downer. In fact, he goes into a major depressed state and suggests that the best thing is for him to be thrown overboard and drown in order to save the lives of others and release them from the anger of God. He just doesn't want to live anymore. But here's where we recognize that our God is indeed a good and gracious God who shows grace even when we're flippant and even when we're disobedient because God sends a huge fish to swallow him up and save him from drowning. And in the belly of the fish, he does business with God. He, he, he has a coming to his senses moment when his pride and his human will are dealt with and he comes into alignment with God and he prays. And as we read his prayer, we see what is actually at the root of the issue. He's made a vow to God. Now, we don't know what the vow is. We can only assume from the statement that the vow that he made was to be a vessel, was to be a mouthpiece, an oath to speak that whatever God told him to say, he would say. And we can assume that because in verse 9, he says, what I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. That suggests that that's the vow that he's made, is to speak the salvation message. But notice that as soon as Jonah comes into alignment with his vow, as soon as he recognizes and commits to fulfill what he's promised and what he's vowed, immediately, next verse, the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah out onto dry ground. Here is an amazing encouragement. Vows made rashly or otherwise are those that God holds us accountable to. It's that which we bind our souls to that can either be a trap that limits life or they can be a source of real blessing and unlock the favor of God in our lives. But the thing is that when we come to God and we deal with vows and we commit to make them good, God instantly visits us with grace and he puts us right back on track to step fully into what he's promised. It's not a case of we've failed and we're forever left on the dung heap or in the failure category. No, our God is a good God who is always willing to show grace, always willing to dust us off, pick us up and put us right back where we left off. Child of God, permit me to be direct. Are there unfulfilled vows in your life? Are there promises that you've made to God? You know, the flippant, if you do this for me, God, then I promise I'll do that. If you help me in this, then I promise I'll serve you in that. Are there vows like those or others that you've made to God? Because these vows are binding spiritual contracts in the eyes of God. He holds us accountable for those vows. We need to recognize the significance of them. There are spiritual power in oaths and vows. They can alter the culture of the soul. They can be traps and limiters in life. They can interrupt favor and blessing. But equally, when we are faithful to the one who is faithful to us, when we make good that which we have promised, God will always visit obedience with blessing and fruitfulness. Perhaps it's time to do business with God. Perhaps it's time to deal with vows that rashly, flippantly, or intentionally and seriously we have made in our lives. Perhaps even now as we speak, God is visiting your mind with oaths and vows and promises that you've made that are still outstanding. He brings it to remembrance because it's time to engage with those and to determine their influence in our lives. We need to decide their influence. Either we need to repent and break them and release our lives from their power, or 
We need to recognize the significance of those vows, alter our forward journey, and make good that which we have promised, because for some of us, it could just be that that oath and vow is actually the gateway for stepping into the next season of His call and His purpose in your life. Regardless of whether we're getting ready to deal with oaths and vows, either positively or negatively, we should all take on board the instructions of Jesus. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Because anything beyond that has spiritual consequences. We need to guard our hearts against dialogue and speech that can alter the culture of the soul. So let's, as we begin to journey towards wrapping this up, let's take another turn and let's highlight four types of vows that we can make that in actual fact are four traps that can ensnare us. And then I think God might want to do business with us on them today. The first is unnecessary vows. We're going to read a huge chunk from Judges chapter 11. It says, Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I'll sacrifice it as a burnt offering. And Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Aror to the vicinity of Minnith as far as Abel Keramim. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter? dancing to the sound of timbrels. She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh no, my daughter, you brought me down and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, You've given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised, now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. You may go, he said, and he let her go for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed, and she was a virgin. I don't know about you, but I find this a really difficult text to read. As a father, I struggle with reading this. And as a believer, I struggle even more with what this potentially presents about God. But this is what we would refer to as an unnecessary vow. Because from what we read through Scripture with regards to God's intervention on behalf of His people within conflicts and military moments, we can understand that God's intervention to bring victory is always based upon His plans and His purposes and is never based upon bargaining and doing deals with Him. We have to understand that God cannot be manipulated. He cannot be controlled. He cannot be bought. That's not how grace works. And it's not how his sovereignty works. He is not sovereign if we believe that we can twist his hand by crossing his palm with silver or whatever it is that we think will guarantee his input and his influence. The starting point, we're told, is that we have to fear him, serve him, and bind ourselves to him, which means we put him in charge. We're fearing him because he is in a place of, of greatness. He is, we recognize him as being bigger. He's sovereign and he is in control and we serve him and his will and purposes. He doesn't serve ours. He's not the genie in the lamp that performs to our beckoning and our will. 
He is the sovereign God who loves us and visits our life with grace and works towards good in every situation, but his work towards good is not determined by what we can offer him or what he gets out of the deal. We need to be careful about making unnecessary vows. <clears throat> the kind that say, God, if you do this, I'll do that. If you help me with this, I'll do that. <clears throat> if you answer my prayer like this, then I'll commit to start living like that. We've got to be careful of that because in those moments, what we're trying to do is manipulate God and he just won't respond to that. But equally then, the outcome that we bind our souls to is often our own doing and not his. So we need to repent and refrain from making unnecessary vows and oaths. He can't be bargained. He can't be bought. He's sovereign and we rest in his sovereignty. The second type of vows is generational vows, and we find again in a big chunk of Scripture, 1 Samuel 14, verse 24. Now, the Israelites were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people under an oath, saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, because I've avenged myself of my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. The entire army entered the woods, and there was honey on the ground. When they went into the woods, they saw the honey oozing out, Yet no one put his hand to his mouth because they feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard that his father had bound the people with the oath, so he reached out the end of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it into the honeycomb. He raised his hand to his mouth and his eyes brightened. Then one of the soldiers told him, Your father bound the army under a strict oath, saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food today. That's why the men are faint. Jonathan said, My father has made trouble for the country. See how my eyes brightened when I tasted a little of this honey. How much better would it have been if the men had eaten today some of the plunder they took from their enemies? Would not the slaughter of the Philistines been even greater? That day after the Israelites had struck down the Philistines from Michmash to Ajalon, they were exhausted. Now, granted, the inference and the consequence with regards to vows here is a bit vague, but there are things still to be learned. Saul swore an oath. He bound his people to a particular behavior and action with the result of a curse if they didn't comply or if they broke the oath. And it's interesting that the text said the soldiers feared the oath. You can see then a recognition amongst the people of the power of oaths and vows, but you can also see almost a superstition attached to that. They genuinely believed that to break the oath would be to invoke a curse, and they lived in fear of that curse. This vow had them entrapped. It had them ensnared. It limited their behaviors and their actions, and the outworking was not positive. Now, Jonathan walks onto the scene, and he's oblivious of what's happened, and he acts contrary to the vow. He broke the vow of, the father, of his father, and he did so with confidence, understanding that the vow his father made was not a good influence on his life. You know, there may be times when we have to break the vows that generations before us have spoken over us and over our families. Superstitions, traditions that our families have inherited or which are intrinsic to the culture of the family or that alter and hinder the way that we live our lives. Generational vows are a thing. And we can see the impact of that in a positive sense in the story of Hannah and Samuel. Hannah made a vow regarding her unborn son. Samuel didn't make the vow, Hannah did. If God gave her a son, she'd commit him to God's service for the remainder of his days. And all of his life was outworked in the service of God. He was the one that God called to release and administer the anointing. He was the one that God used as one of the greatest prophets in Israel's history to minister the very structure of God amongst his people. 
the vow made by his mother did indeed shape the forward direction of his life because God takes vows seriously and binds us to them. We need to be careful then about the vows we speak over our children and over our family. And there will be times that God calls us to draw a line in the sand and break that which those before us have spoken over our lives and over our family's life that perhaps are dictating the culture and the direction of our entire family and the generations after us. But equally, there will be times when perhaps unknown to us, the will of God begins to unfold in unusual ways, leads us in peculiar but phenomenal directions because of those that have gone before who have been moved by God in prayer and have spoken something of purpose, spoken a vow over the, their lives and, and the families after them. As for me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord, that kind of stuff. But actually the outworking of that begins to shape our lives and our destiny in profound ways. The third vow is quite an important one. It's responsive vows, Matthew 26, verse 31. Then Jesus told the disciples, this very night you'll all follow in account of me, for it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've risen, I'll go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Now, while in this text, the word vow or oath isn't mentioned specifically, we can see that what Peter states is indeed a vow. I will never, he says. If you think about wedding vows, a vow is made by that statement of agreement and affirmation, I will or I do. We've got to be careful about making responsive vows. We can do it in Christian circles, actually. When we see things happen that we're a bit uncomfortable with, and we go, I will never let that happen to me. I will never speak in tongues. I will never allow God to, for that manifestation to happen to me. I will never let God move me like that. I'll never be in a situation where that could happen to me. And in actual fact, what we do then is we bind our souls to something that God never called us to bind our souls to. We've got to be careful. But here's an example of moments that vows can at times be rashly and flippantly made because Peter makes a vow that he later breaks. But his vow at that time is one that he passionately makes. He's caught in the emotion of the moment. He's responding to the trauma and distress that he's experiencing, the uncertainty and the drama that's unfolding around him. And we need to guard against making vows in moments of distress and trauma and pain. We need to be careful not to make promises in the heat of the moment that we can't deliver on. And we need to be careful about making promises and vows that we attach our soul to. I will never allow myself to be in a relationship where I get hurt like that again. I will never be that open and vulnerable with someone ever again. I'll never put myself in a position where I could be abused like that again. I will never allow myself to develop such a friendship. These statements that we make that come out of pain and hurt actually are moments in which we make vows that we attach our soul to and that impact the forward direction of our lives. We've got to be careful. I'll never allow myself to be as vulnerable and, and, and I'll never allow myself to express emotion like that again. And suddenly we bind ourselves to that and the result is that we end up 
more emotionally distressed and disturbed and mentally ill as a result. We've got to be careful. The great thing, though, is that even though Peter vowed to Jesus to do that, which he later did not, Jesus didn't chastise him and rebuke him and chuck him out as a failure. No, he walks with him, invites him into love, reinstates him with the call to feed his sheep. Unfulfilled vows are serious. Most spoken rashly can have consequences, but Jesus is bigger than all of that. His grace is sufficient in every situation and he visits us over and over with grace upon grace that trumps any consequence a vow can ever make. All we have to do is fear him, serve him, and hold as fast as we can to him. The fourth and final vow is doorway vows. We see it in two places. 1 Samuel 14, 1 Kings 19. Saul said, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. This final example of vows is significant. They are doorway vows. They are vows that shape our behavior and our actions, but equally that set out an invitation to the spiritual and bring a consequence as a result. Both of these examples they invoke and invite the spiritual as part of their vow. Jesus did make it clear in his Sermon on the Mount that there is the possibility of the influence of the demonic within vows and oaths. We've just to keep our yes to yes and our no to no. Because vows and oaths can provide invitations and doorways. Unfulfilled vows, Scripture tells us, leave us guilty of sin. Unconfessed sin, not brought to the cross, not brought under the blood, does provide an opening and an invitation to the demonic. So we have to be careful in making flippant and irrational vows. We need to be careful when making vows in heated moments of anger or in response to pain that actually we don't begin to swear, swear to do that or to invoke that which belongs to the kingdom of darkness rather than the kingdom of light or the empire of darkness rather than the kingdom of light. When we speak flippantly, angrily, under the heat of the moment, we can make contracts that bind ourselves to that which is not the fruit of the Spirit, but is an actual fact feeding the sinful nature, opening our hearts up to emotions and feelings and influences that are not godly. We have to be aware that these vows can provide openings and doorways to the spiritual. And while that sounds really severe, we respond to that by calling out the power of grace. Let's step back from a moment when it comes to dealing with the spiritual. Let's step back from the thought process of spinning heads and spewing green pea soup, of big extreme manifestations and the power of the demonic. Let's focus instead on this. His grace is sufficient. Repentance is is the most powerful tool that we have. Because when we repent, the authority and the influence of the enemy is instantly removed. He is rendered completely powerless and we put Jesus Christ in control. So while we recognize the influence of vows and where we recognize the ways that they can make impact on us, what we also recognize is his grace is more than sufficient for us. And when we bring that to repentance and put him in charge, he breaks all of those powers and releases his authority within us. Here's how then we deal with vows. We fear him, commit to serve him, and hold fast to him. 
We put him in control. We allow his voice and direction to be the guiding influence. And there's some simple steps that we take. When dealing with vows, we ask God to reveal any vows that we have made that he wishes us to deal with. We repent of making that vow and we put him in charge. And then we verbally break the vow in Jesus' name. It's when vows are spoken, Scripture says, that they become binding. So if verbally they are made, verbally they need to be broken. And then once we've done that, here's the biggest step. We move on. We move on and trust that the God to whom we hold fast is stronger and greater. And we lean into this. God takes vows seriously. But God is also the God that makes vows. Listen to this. Hebrews 7 verse 20. Others became priests without an oath. But Jesus became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our needs. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins. He sacrificed for our sins. He sacrificed for your sins once and for all when he offered himself. The law appoints as high priest men in all their weaknesses. But the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. God takes oaths seriously. But God himself has sworn an oath. And his oath is this. Jesus Christ is our guarantee of a better covenant. He has gone through the heavens. He is seated in the heavenly places. And by the power of an indestructible life, he opens up the gateways of heaven and wakens us and welcomes us in. No sin is too great. No vow is too powerful. No curse cannot be broken. The blood of Jesus Christ and his position as our great high priest declared by the oath of God himself means any point, anywhere, we we have freedom and deliverance and victory in Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is the priest of the better covenant. So this morning we come to a place where we need to recognize, and it's not a big cheery finish, and I'm sorry, but we need to come to a place where we need to do business with God. We need to look and allow him to speak to us. Are there moments in which we've made vows that we haven't made good? Intentionally, knowingly, we would come to him and said, yes, I commit to this. I vow, I promise, I will, I'll do. But we have not. It's time to make good on that vow. It's time to come to him and make right that vow. And watch as it unlocks the next season of ministry and life for you. Blessing and favor. 
But there may well be that in this moment, he's just touching areas of the heart, bringing to mind things that have said, things that have been done. Words that have left the mouth in the heat of the moment, in distress and trauma, flippantly, in moments of spiritual immaturity, where we've made a vow that actually needs to get broken, that needs to be dealt with. And the way that we deal with that it's just really simple. We repent and we invite him to break it. And we break it in, in his powerful name. And in a few moments, we're going to do that as we take bread and wine together and celebrate the priest who's been made ours by the oath of God, the freedom and forgiveness that we have. But right now, I want to invite you